0: Last week I did something different in the uh, order of the reading. I usually read the complementary passage and then our primary sermon text, and I reversed it last week for what I think were obvious reasons. Uh, But I think I'd like to follow that pattern again this week. Uh, I want to look at Leviticus, which is our sermon text first uh, in the reading of the Scriptures, and then we'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, follow that order. So if you would please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. As far in the reading of God's Word, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, and reading through chapter 6 and verse 2, continuing in the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. salvation. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the hearing of your word. Lord, would you speak to us through that word. Make us alive by your spirit. Change our hearts to be more conformed unto the image of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So if there's anything that I have seen over the decades in my pastoral ministry in regards to the Christian faith it's that the Christian faith has tended to move from being a socially positive thing a social asset being a member of the right church being being plugged into the right network was a socially advancing thing to be, to being associated with an evangelical church, a church which believes the Bible is the Word of God, is at best irrelevant, and at worst, it's a social detriment. In other words, in certain corporate C-suite levels, You don't talk about Jesus. In the office place, you keep your religion to yourself. And that mindset has produced a vacuum. It's produced a vacuum that I think we would all obviously agree. Our culture has a variety of worldviews that are competing against one another. Certainly our globe does. I find it ironic that all three of the major monotheistic religions consider Leviticus chapter 16 verses 1 through 10 to be sacred text. And I think all three of them are in the process of chopping each other up. To have the mind of Christ means to be shaped weakly by His Word. And when I say His Word, I mean His inspired Word, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that's why we go through these very difficult and weird texts about sending goats off to Azazel. Because in one sense, that sounds utterly irrelevant to your job tomorrow morning. And in another sense, that daily, weekly leaning in will transform your mind. So when Paul says, let this mind dwell in you richly, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he means that you and I, shaped by His Word, shaped by our weekly encounter in His Word, shaped by our weekly encounter with Him, are going to be changed Sabbath by Sabbath, day by day, moment by moment. And that's Aaron's core principle that he needs to understand as we look at our text this morning. Because in the first ten verses of this text, you will see an emphasis on the holiness of God. That God before whom Aaron is about to come. Look again at the first two verses of chapter 16. Three times in two verses, death is threatened. And verse 1 starts in the context of Leviticus chapter 10. After God had killed Nadab and Abihu, the word of God came to Moses and Aaron. Just in case you forgot. (laughs) Then when God says, mess with my tapestry." And you will come under my judgment. We must see that the God before whom we come is a God who is holy. That's Isaiah's vision. When he sees God, he cries out, I am undone. Because he sees the seraphim crying out daily, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And you see the emphasis on that here in the first two verses of Leviticus chapter 16 and the approach to God. This absolute central emphasis... On holiness. Now, to understand again what our overall story is, it's fascinating to me. It's like the scripture really, it just tells one story. It it just tells this story in an unfolding way again and again and again. But the story that the Scriptures tell, the story is that God created the earth to be good. The relationship with the creation to be good. The relationship with the creatures to be good. The relationship with Him to be good. And our first parents rebelled. They sinned. They took of the fruit that he had said, don't eat. And they ate. They were cast out of this perfect place. And an angel was sent to guard the gate with a flaming sword. There is no way back into Eden. And then the story develops of God calling out a people to himself. And now the tabernacle has been built. The tabernacle is exactly the tapestry of creation The colors, the sky, all of these things. It's a picture of a garden and it's a way how to get back into the garden, into the holy place. This place of gold and treasure, this rich fellowship and dwelling with God where the table of showbread is right before the ark and the, the, the bread that is laid out on the table symbolizing God feasting together with each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the golden candlesticks that cast the light of God's presence on this beautiful table and the mercy seat and all of these things, this place of peace. And it's in the middle of the wilderness. It's in the tabernacle. It's traveling with the people through the dangers. They're all camped around it. But this is their God. This is Eden. This is how to come back home. At the end of Exodus, of course, you remember that Moses is standing outside the tabernacle and can't get in. The glory of God fills the tabernacle. And Moses stands alone, barred from that presence with God. Until God shows the children of Israel how to follow the priest Aaron and his sons and build up to this great day that we are entering into in Leviticus chapter 17. We're just preparing for it in Leviticus 16, but in Leviticus 17, entering into Yom Kippur. The day of atonement. The great day when God says, Israel is at peace. That great day that they are all looking forward to when they can come back into presence and fellowship with God. But you know Israel's problem, and your problem, and my problem, is we would like to have fellowship with God on our own terms. We would like to have fellowship with God as long as He's giving us good practical advice. We would like to have fellowship with God as long as He's comforting us in our troubles. And we would like to have fellowship with God As long as he doesn't interfere with what I actually want to do. (laughs) Now, if you're a reader of literature, you might recognize that's called moral therapeutic deism. (laughs) Just tell me what to do, make me feel better when I hurt, and leave me alone the rest of the time. That's our God. And the message of our story thus far is that that God will not tolerate that attitude. The God of this Bible, the God of heaven and earth, the God that is presented to us here is a God who A, just wiped out Nadab and Abihu for their unholiness, but B, should have also wiped out, Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, because all of our priests failed on day one. All of them dropped the ball. And that consuming fire that came across the mercy seat, that came out from the presence of God, that consuming fire should have annihilated all five. That's the wonder of that story. And as if Aaron needed any reminding, he's reminded that you are approaching a holy God. Beloved, as you and I are in God's presence, we know Reformed theology says that you... Where where the Word is faithfully preached, the Word of God is spoken. God speaks by His Word and Spirit. He particularly speaks in the Word and sacraments, the ordinary means of grace. It is in the Word preached and in the Word tasted, the Gospel heard and the Gospel tasted, that you and I encounter God. That's plain vanilla, reformed, quote-unquote, theology. But I wonder if that's what goes through our own minds when we sit under the preaching of the Word. I wonder if that's what goes through our own minds when we come to the table. I think it's at the core of the warning about the table. When Paul says, for this reason, some of you are sick and others die, I think he could be saying the exact same thing about the response to the Word. Because the word brings with it its own judgment. God speaks in his word and it does accomplish the purpose to which he sent it forth. And God's word here to Aaron and to all the children of Israel ever after is remember you are coming into the presence of holiness. And I do find it very ironic if you notice in verse 3 the juxtaposition between I will kill you. Because I dwell over the mercy seat. And do you see how important God takes Jesus Christ and the testimony of his gospel? As I said, this is just the same story. It's unfolded again and again and again. The story of a substitute... The story of a perfect sinner. The story of a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The story of a second Adam who will come and take your sin and my sin. The story again and again and again of, yes, this world is a hot mess. But there's Eden to be found. There's Eden to be lived. But beloved, you must first see that that Eden, is, at the heart of that Eden, is a holy God. And of course, that leads to the second point, which is an unholy priest. And you'll notice the first thing that Aaron is to do is to come before God not in the breastplate and the ephod. The text specifically says his linen garments. He's to come to God representing his own sin and the sins of his household, with a bull and a ram. He's to come before God, recognizing his own sinfulness. Now, I can tell you, and I bet probably any parent could say the same story. If you were to ask people what they think of me, I think the answers would become increasingly nuanced the closer you got to my household. (laughs) I think probably further out, you know, people that I see once a year, people that I, you know, people that don't really know me all that well, ask them what they think about that may be good or bad, frankly. <laughs> it can go either way. <laughs> but it's the people in my own household that see the broken. That see. That see the messed up. That that see the inconsistency. That see the. He says this, but I see him fail here. And I think. It's helpful in, in one sense, and, and I think this is true, frankly, all kids with their parents. I think children tend to go through a season in life where mommy and daddy were perfect, now they see some flaws in mommy and daddy, and they turn really, really bitter uh, because mommy and daddy are not just perfect anymore. Well, that's how it is. But I want you, especially if you're a child who's struggling with the fact that you may be able to find some spots in your parents' lives, and they may be significant spots. I want you to see that God specifically says Aaron, the great high priest, is a sinner. And any Aaron who will ever stand before you and say he's not is not a faithful priest, is not a faithful pastor. And I think it's a means of grace even there that God gives to us flawed people. And as I was thinking about this passage or about this point, it drew my mind to 1 uh, 1 Kings chapter 15. And this is when Abijam begins to reign over Judah. And the, the text goes on. He walked in all the sins that his father did. Uh, his father did before him. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Beloved, they're all broken. The Bible makes a point of reminding us of the broken. So that only one character can stand out. Only one person can stand out. And we see that in the scriptures, beloved. You must also see it in your life. Every hero is flawed from Adam all the way down to Paul, the murderer. Every hero is flawed except the one that is held forth. Final thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is this Azazel because this is something that plenty of ink has been spilled on. Now if you've got another translation or if you are familiar with the overall story, you might recognize the word scapegoat. It actually does not appear in your bibles. The word is literally Azazel and nobody knows what it means. And so that's why earlier they translated it as scapegoat, because they wanted to draw the attention to what the goat is doing. But then later translators just said, listen, we don't, it clearly does not mean scapegoat. It's got nothing to do with goat. And so we'll just say Azazel. So, of course, everybody starts getting into debates. What does it mean to be sent to Azazel? Is this a demon that lives in the wilderness? Is Azazel the retributive aspect of God's justice? Is Azazel a cliff, a geographic location that they're to launch the goat off of? What is Azazel? Here's where I want to leave you. (laughs) Succinctly and pithily. (laughs) I don't know. And neither does anyone else. And here's why I think that is beautiful. The Bible is a tapestry, a story that is given to us whose weaver is far beyond our mind. There are themes that run throughout the Scriptures that we are continuing to unfold. We're continuing to explore these themes thousands of years later. These same songs that we have sung were written by people who understood it in Psalm 103. People who have clung to it in the storms of their lives for thousands of years. People who have gone to the lions and people who have gone to the hangman. People have gone to their deathbeds and prisons because this is somebody else's story. And sometimes, when you come up against someone else's story, a tapestry that I did not weave and that I had no hand in creating, you're going to find sections of that tapestry that you just don't have any idea. And I'll give you two examples. Not, don't have any idea, but certainly, if the Christian doctrine of baptism was a man-invented doctrine, was a human-invented doctrine, do you think that we would have so many different arguments about it? Of course not. Somebody would have said, (laughs) this is precisely what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And why to do it? Somebody would have jotted that down for us. Instead, we come as Christians to a Bible that says, "Go therefore and baptize, teaching them. Go therefore and disciple, teaching them, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you." Sorry. We come to the doctrine of baptism already there, and we try to understand it. The same thing with the Lord's Supper. We know that the Lord's Supper is there. First Corinthians eleven. We know that this is a sacrament of the church. What's the relationship of the Lord's Supper in all its elements and everything else? Plenty of arguments have come around that, but it's a doctrine that was given. And this Azazel is another one of these things that we don't know. And frankly, I'm not interested in arguing about because there's plenty of interesting theories and I can point you to all of them. But here is why William Tyndale supposedly invented the word scapegoat because he wanted to draw your attention to what's really going on, which is that literally the sins of the entire nation of Israel are placed upon this animal and it is sent out from Eden, out from the presence of God, out from the presence of His people and it is sent into chaos. And Paul says, Jesus did that for you. Jesus bore your sin and went outside the camp. He did it for you and for me. And beloved, that is the heart of this approach to God. This goat bearing all the sins of Israel sent away from Eden Into the chaos, so that you and I might be drawn into the presence of God. And we see again and again and again in each of these various facets of the only story ever worth telling. We see what Jesus has done, we see what Jesus does. When that Azazel goat went out it had to be repeated every year. It had to be repeated on a continual basis. But beloved the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world the Lamb of God who continued. To take away the sin of the world. Gives to you and me not a re-sacrificing of any masses. (laughs) Not a re-sacrificing of his once for all. He gives to you and me a taste. A feeding of our senses. A taste of what he is. Food and wine. Joy and nourishment. Our very life. When we come to a holy God, when we recognize that we are unholy in and of ourselves, and when we see that Jesus Christ is the one who bore our sin into the chaos, so that you and I might be drawn home to Eden, Father, even as your gospel is sweet upon our ears, nourishing in our mouths, sweet upon our lips, may our lives this week be sweet, an aroma, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you, which is our reasonable service. We pray in Christ's name, amen.